Open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, you can open up your Bible or your app Bible or whatever it is, but it'd be good for you to be looking at the Holy Scriptures this morning. So we look at Mark chapter 9. I want you to imagine what it was like to be on that mountain at the transfiguration and be those disciples and see Jesus transformed before you, to see the glory of God shine through the face and the clothes and the body and the person of Jesus. I mean, imagine that. Imagine that. What an amazing experience that Peter and James and John got to experience. And they remembered that forever. Then they were able to record that for us in God's word. And God's word is forever settled in heaven. So that will be something we will remember and read about for eternity. Am I on here? Am I? Okay, good. But I'm not on up here. So if that could be up there, that'd be great. And think about John wrote this in John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There we go. And we... Beheld his glory. We have seen his glory. So John wrote about this. He said, I saw the glory of Jesus. And of course, Norm read this for you in Second Peter. And that Peter said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Like we saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ when he revealed himself and his honor and his glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. The point is, the transfiguration was a big deal. It's a big deal. It was something that these guys talked about. I mean, imagine over and over throughout the rest of their life, they talked about this, but they didn't talk about it until after the resurrection. In fact, look down in Mark chapter 9. Look at verse 9. The Bible says they were coming down from the mountain, and he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man, until him, Jesus, had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So Peter, James, and John's imaginations must have been blown, but they didn't talk about it, according to Jesus' instructions here, until after the resurrection. Now, where were these other disciples? Where's the other nine at? Well, they were left down in some town in the valley there below the mountain. And so when Jesus and these three come down... They find these other disciples in an intense spiritual battle. In fact, that's what we see in verses 14 through verse 29. We see evil unleashed. Let's pray, and then we will read this passage together. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will give us understanding, especially as we go through this right now and read your holy word. This is the word of God. 
And may the powerful word of God pierce hearts, may it give understanding, may it convict, and God, may it lead us to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you look down with me in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. The Bible says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it casts, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And when they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd, I think I, oh, yeah, sorry, verse 25. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, what's this passage about? What's going on in this passage? Well, I think this passage, in this passage, Jesus is teaching about faith in him, faith in Christ. And we see Jesus testing the faith of the disciples. We see the father places his faith in Jesus. We see a crowd that is called faithless. So I think this passage is all about faith. And it highlights people who lacked faith. And it highlights people who needed to, or people who had genuine faith, or a person who had genuine faith. And so this this lesson here is about faith. And this is a very important one for us. We cannot access the abundant spiritual blessings that God has for us without faith. So it's so important for you to understand what faith is. Romans 5, 2 says, through him, that's Jesus Christ, we have obtained access by faith into his grace in which you stand. So like you need to understand what it means to have faith in Christ from Genesis to revelation over and over. God calls us to have faith in him. In fact, 
from the very beginning. Uh, in Genesis, Abraham was said to have faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And we see through the book of Hebrews that they, the, the book of Hebrews says that the Old Testament saints over and over, they believed God. Of course, Jesus Christ himself said that you must believe in me and Jesus to have eternal life. So understanding what faith is, what genuine faith is, is so important. Jesus declared that he forgives and offers eternal life and adoption to those who believe. And if you notice through the New Testament, when the Bible talks about faith, it talks about it in, the, in a sense that it's a present tense. In other words, it's something that's ongoing. Yes, it starts at some point, but then it keeps going. Sometimes we talk about faith as in when it happened in the past. So, so last week we had Isabel and we had Vicky and we had Paul that gave their testimonies. And they talked about when, when their faith started in the Lord. But do you realize faith doesn't just start and end. Faith is something that is continuous. It should be a part of your daily experience. You should be daily continuing trusting the Lord. And as a believer, God continues to test the genuineness of our faith. In fact, Peter, who was on that holy mountain and saw Jesus transformed, he writes this. He says, God tests the, the genuineness of of our faith. Sometimes that's through trial. Sometimes that's God allowing temptations to come into our life. But the, but the reality is, is that we have faith starts and continues on. And it's, and it's logical, therefore, that God would want to test the genuineness of our faith. So what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the idea of faith, the idea of the genuineness of our faith. So here you see the disciples are being tested in the genuineness of of their faith. I mean, they're, they're having a really bad day. I mean, think about that. They're arguing publicly with the Pharisees or with the scribes, and they've kind of lost the battle in some sense because they said they could cast this demon out. They couldn't do it, so they're humiliated in front of this town. And then on top of that, Jesus walks up when all this happens, and he sees their failure. The town sees their failure. And so this is kind of a really bad day for them. And why did all this happen? Well, because I think Jesus wants to teach his disciples, but also us, what genuine faith looks like. So we're going to look, first of all, at some marks of what it looks like to have a lack of faith in Christ. And then we're going to look at the marks of genuine faith. So first of all, those who lack faith in Christ are, first of all, overpowered by the power of evil. So if you can open your bulletin up. And then there you can see there's a place for you to take notes. You can write this down. So first of all, those who lack faith in Christ are overpowered by the power of, overcome by the power of evil. We look down at verse 14. The Bible says, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes were arguing with them. And if you look down at verse 17, it says that someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son for you, to you, and for he has a spirit that makes him mute, or a demon. So think about the incredible evil that is taking place at this time here. Here you have the disciples who are arguing. So think about that, that public display of, in some sense, verbal uh, hate from the scribes to the disciples, and who knows how the disciples are reacting to that. So there's a spiritual battle taking place here. You have these scribes who are believing lies, 
believing lies about life and life lies about Jesus. So there's a spiritual battle taking place in their heart and their mind. And then you have this boy and this father, and he's being oppressed by a demon. In fact, if you look down in the text there, you can understand that this demon would seize this boy and cast him to the ground, which, which is from the plain reading of the text. It looks like this, this demon cast him to the ground and probably was hitting his head on the ground and therefore causing these seizures and Probably this constant torture caused brain damage, which resulted in these epileptic seizures. So there's, there's a lot happening here. And this, this boy is ravaged by the evilness and the, the, the wickedness of this demon, this demon, demonic presence. In fact, look down in verse 22. Look at the goal this demon had. And it says, and, and it often cast him into fire and into water. Why? To destroy him. And this is the goal that Satan and his demonic uh, minions have, and that is to destroy people. And the goal of this demon was to show his dominance and to seek to hurt and destroy this young man. In fact, if you think about everything that was happening there before Jesus came up, that's kind of what was happening with everyone. You have these scribes who are believing a lie. Why would Satan want them to believe a lie? To destroy them and those who listen to him. You have this boy, and he's seeking to destroy this boy and this father. Why does he want to do that? Because that's what Satan and evil does. And you have these disciples who are overcome by this evil, and it was causing them defeat. And so the point is, is that nobody around could do anything about it because this evil was overpowering in so many different ways. And, the, and everyone was helpless, even the disciples. And so just picture this. This evil, chaotic scene with the power of evil on full display, dominating everyone around the crowd, the Jewish scribes, the disciples, the dad, the boy, all overcome by evil until Jesus steps up. And Jesus comes in full power to deliver this boy. And why, up until Jesus came, why was evil able to reign with such dominance? I mean, think about that. Why is that? What was that able to happen? Well, look down in verse 19. Jesus identifies the problem. Verse 19, he said to them, O faithless generation. So right after Jesus heard all of this, he said, O faithless generation. So what does Jesus identify as the problem here? He's saying you are faithless. In other words, you are unbelieving. This, this word faithless is translated in other places in the New Testament as unbelievers. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6 refers to this word as, translates it as unbelievers. So Jesus was saying this, you are unbelievers. So the reason evil reigned with such dominance was because they were not trusting in the righteous one. They were rejecting God with their life and their decisions. They were seeking to trust in themselves and and something else. So those who lacked faith in Christ were overcome by the power of evil. And that's a fact. It's a fact that was happening in that situation, but that's a fact that happens in our world. If you lack faith in Christ, in other words, if you don't believe Christ, then you are overcome by evil. Maybe not to the same degree, maybe not in the same way. Like there was different ways that evil manifested itself in that situation. That's the same thing that's true in our world. But the reality is, is without Christ, your heart is far from God. Consider the evil of that situation. And then also consider the evil, really, frankly, 
that we face in this world. And if you're without Christ, you face in your own heart. Even if you're with Christ, you're in Christ, sometimes we still allow sin to dominate us. Think about maybe the, the heart that is dominated by greed and discontentment. Yesterday, we were reading a family devotions in Luke about the rich man. Remember the story that Jesus told about the rich man? And he said, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get barns and build bigger barns, put my green in there. And this man was planning his future. He was thinking about all the riches that he had and how he was going to be even richer and he was going to have a great life. And God says, you fool, you're going to die tonight. And so, so what happens in a situation like that, when we think, oh, I can't wait to do this, my, my mind's all about things and happiness and the future. And, and I've, I'm, once I get this, then I'm going to be happy. Once I have this, then I'll be happy. It's really rejection of God. And it's really not trusting God. It's really trusting in yourself and in those riches and seeking joy and contentment and those things, which, by the way, will never happen. You'll never get that joy and contentment in those things. Or maybe, maybe it's lust. Maybe your mind is saturated with, with evil thoughts. And so you seek to, to reject God but, and trust in your own idea of, of how you can have happiness and, and how you can escape what you think are the problems of this world through your lust. I think about... Just, I was thinking about what's an, what's an illustration to help people understand this. And part of it, I think, for me, comes back to, I just think about, like, if I was in your house, what th- might this look like in your house? So I thought, let me pick a teenager, okay? No one in particular near. I don't have really any teenagers that, at this age yet. But let's, let's say, for instance, that a parent comes into the room of a teenager. So if you're a teenager here, you picture this. Your parent comes in your room. You're sitting on your bed there. And your parent says... I want you to go clean the garage. Okay? And so your teenager's sitting there, and the teenager goes, what? <laughs> Why do I have to do something like that? That's just so dumb. Like, I just did it last week. She didn't do it. Like, she didn't do it yet. How come I got to do it today, right? And so they're, they're complaining. They're griping. You know, they go out of their room, maybe slam their door, go in there, and they do it. And think about what's that person doing in that moment. Think about that. That person is choosing not to trust in the Lord, they're choosing not to, to seek help from God, to obey their parents, to, to please the Lord. They're choosing to just go their own way. My point is this. When you reject God and you seek not to trust in the Lord, then you are dominated by evil. So what's the problem, according to Jesus? That we have a faith problem. Jesus said to the crowds and to the scribes, you are unbelieving And even to the disciples, he said, listen, guys, you're not praying, which reveals that you're not believing in me. You can see that in verse 29. He says that this cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, which kind of leaves open the idea that you're not trusting me. You're not praying, not trusting the Lord. So the disciples missed something here. There was a lack of faith. They were going their own way, which leads us to the next point. Those who lack faith in Christ are depend on deficient humanity, depend on deficient humanity. What do I mean by that? Well, notice how the father describes the disciples attempt to cast out the demon. Verse 18. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams and grinds his teeth, becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And listen, look look at that. They were not able. I think it's really important that they didn't say, they said the name of Christ and you weren't able. They they did it in your power and you weren't able. They were not able. In, In a sense, the disciples did have faith, but it was faith in themselves. 
and their own deficient, weak ability. I mean, the reality is, is that every one of us actually has faith in something, right? We believe something. We depend upon something. You have faith. You might say, well, I don't believe it. You have faith in something. The question isn't if you have faith. The question is, what is your faith in? And is it a dependable object? The question is not if you have faith. The question is, who or what is the object of your faith? And so if you're, if you're a sinful person, which we all are, and we're frail, and you place your faith in that, then your faith is mis. Placed. So someone could say something like this. They have a, a struggle in their life or something going on. They say, well, you know what? Messed up this week. I'm just going to try better next week. Who are they trusting? Themselves. Or, you know what? I'm really struggling. I'm going to go and confess my sins to a priest. Well, who are they trusting? So, so the point is, is that we can put our faith in people or in ourselves instead of the one who can deliver us. And secondly, or thirdly, Those who lack faith in Christ grieve the heart of God. Look at verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And from what you see here, there's a deep grief in Jesus' heart because these people don't trust him. They don't believe in him. I mean, think about how frustrating that would be if you were Jesus. Right? I mean, you have all power. He even says that I can do anything. And then you have these people that are just trusting themselves or some kind of fake false religion or their own way, their own own idea how to go to God. And yet you have the power of almighty God because you are God. That's Jesus. I mean, the other day I was um, in our kitchen and there was my four-year-old and he had a bottle of water and he was going like this, trying to open it. And then he puts it in his mouth and children don't do this. He tried to open it with his teeth. You know, so you have these little bitty teeth they have in their mouth. He's going like this. And I'm like, oh, what are you doing? You're going to break your teeth, kid. You know, and the funny thing is, it's like I'm standing right here. I mean, I maybe is not as strong as some of you guys, but I think I can open up a water bottle. Right. I mean, and so how frustrating it is for a parent when you see a child going, eh, or ah, that you're like, just, would you ask me actually? Just, I'm right here. I mean, think about that. Don't you think Jesus felt the same way? It's kind of like, Seriously? Like, how many miracles have I done? I mean, how powerful am I? I'm, I can do anything. Just come to me in faith. So what is genuine faith? What is genuine faith? What are the marks of those who have faith in Christ? Well, genuine faith, first of all, depends on the person and power of Christ. Notice how the Father calls, how Jesus calls the Father to trust him. Look at verse 19. And he answered them. This is Jesus. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And notice this, bring him to me. Jesus presented himself as the one to trust. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him. And when, he saw, when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy. And he fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. So why did the demon react this way? Well, when he saw Jesus, the Bible says, he saw him and immediately he reacted. Why is that? He saw the most powerful, the all-powerful, righteous Jesus, which stood no match to that evil demonic power. Verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Why do you think Jesus asked that question? 
I was reading that. I was thinking, I mean, he knew the answer to that, right? Why do you think he asked that? I think Jesus did this to, to demonstrate compassion for this man, you know? I'm, just, I'm not just doing something for you. I want to I know you personally. Like, what, how long has this been taking place? And so here's Jesus demonstrating compassion. I think the man recognized it because look down in verse 22. And he says, and it's often cast him into the fire to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. So what is that talking about right there? Compassion. That's the person of Jesus, right? That's who he is. Like, if you really are loving and merciful, would you help us? And then he says, and help us. Well, what does that point to? That's to Jesus' power. He has the ability to do that. He has the, that's what he can do. That's his, that's his uh, power. And so he says, have compassion and have, and, and help us, please. So notice both those aspects. It's God's goodness and God's greatness. It's God's character and God's ability. Both those are actually really important, right? Both those are very important. If if Jesus was compassionate but didn't have the ability, then he couldn't save him. If Jesus had the ability but wasn't compassionate, he couldn't have saved him. But Jesus actually loves us and he has the ability to save us through his life, death, and resurrection. So look down at verse 23. So Jesus said to him, if you can, it's kind of like, excuse me? Do you know who you're talking to? All things are possible for the one who believes. What an astounding thing to say. All things are possible for the one who believes. Now, what does that mean? You know, a lot of people read this and, and someone, sometimes they interpret this in a wrong way. Sometimes people, even pastors, preach this in a way that's actually very harmful to people. So what is this talking about? Let me just go through it. I want to talk about two false interpretations of this real quickly. Two false interpretations. First of all, some people look at this verse and they say, I'm going to call it the name it and claim it. The name it and claim it. So it's the idea that some falsely twist this verse to focus the attention on man Actually, I'm missing one. That's my point number two. Point number one is actually faith in your own faith. So we'll get to that one in a second. So two false interpretations. First one is faith in your own faith. So some people twist this verse and focus the attention on man, on us, instead upon God. And how do they do that? Well, they teach it like this. They say that Christ's work in your life is based upon the degree or the intensity of your faith. You know, So if you really want God to work in your life, then you really have to believe. And if God's not working, then obviously you're not believing enough. So there's like this intensity and degree of faith that you must have in order to see God work. In fact, a parallel passage of this usually is quoted, Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says that because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you. Sometimes people falsely look at that passage in this passage and they they teach that that god's work is dependent on the amount of your faith so again so if you want something you're like man i, I need a new car or i need a job so if you don't have that yet then maybe it's probably because you don't have enough faith so you need to get more faith in order to have that what you want and so it's kind of like a, a self-focus a self-centered focus really to focus on your own faith and set upon the object of your faith which is jesus and I just want to 
highlight this because this false teaching is in many churches. It's in many churches. And, and I just, as your shepherd, I think it's important for me to warn you. Sometimes people, sometimes it looks like this. People will have um, maybe a need, like they, maybe they, um, like I said, need a job or maybe they have a disease and maybe they have some kind of problem. And, and sometimes preachers will get up and they'll say, you know, if, if, you, if you have that and it hasn't been taken care of, it's probably because you don't have enough faith. Like there's, a, there's a story that I think illustrates this well. It was a boy named Wesley Parker who was 11 years old. He had diabetes. And his uh, parents came to a church in California, and, uh, and a pastor got up and started uh, preaching at the very end of his sermon. He said, you know, if you just believe, anything's possible. God can do whatever you want. And so his parents um, thought, well, this is amazing. And the, and the preacher said, you know, if you want to be healed, I want you to come up. So this boy and his parents came up, and this preacher says, you know, do you believe that you can be healed from your diabetes. And the boy said, yes, I believe. And the parents, he said to your parents, do you guys believe? He said, yes, we believe. And the pastor said, okay, they believe, and you therefore are healed because you have believed. So this boy went home and the parents went and they took their EpiPens or whatever the pens are and all those medications, they threw it out in the trash and they started announcing to people that this boy is, is, is healed and and that he doesn't have this anymore. In fact, the next day, next morning, they woke up and they did a, a test and found out that he still had it, but they didn't believe it. They, they said, well, that's, that's, a, that's a lie of the devil right there. And it's interesting. He actually wrote a book. The father did, Larry, after he came out of prison for, for what actually happened. He wrote a book about this. And this is what he said. He said, over the next two days, Wesley showed all the signs of rising blood sugar and diabetic decline. He was vomiting, headache, excessive urination, stomach pain. And we responded with fervent prayer, trying to persuade ourselves that, that there, was, there was no real danger here. And he says, it was horrible. We were fighting ourselves because of our love for our sons. We wanted to, to give him insulin, but we were fighting, thinking that faith demanded we don't do it. And they believe that they didn't have enough faith. So the reason why this is going on is they need more faith. So we just need to have more faith. And if we have more faith, then he'll be healed. And so they just, you know, kept saying, oh, let's, let's have more faith and encouraging each other. Oh, we believe. And so you, you couldn't say, you couldn't say that he was going to, he had, he had this disease because that wouldn't show faith, right? So, and you can't have these medications in the house because that would show that we don't have faith. So we, well, eventually the boy succumbed and actually passed away and died. He suffered a final diabetic convulsion and he died in his father's arms. And it doesn't end there because the father didn't believe it. This is what he said. He says, my reaction was, this is nothing to get excited about. He's going to rise from the dead. I mean, this, I mean, if anyone really believed, don't you think this guy believed, right? And he said, this, he's going to rise from the dead. The following Sunday, the Parkers conducted a resurrection service, at the funeral home. And even when they buried his body in the Mountain View Cemetery, his parents refused to attend the funeral. They still believed that he would rise again. So, so the problem is, when you have this type of teaching, it actually is very hurtful to people. And this passage, in the parallel passage in Matthew 17, is not teaching faith saves you. Do you realize that? Faith doesn't save you. It's Jesus that saves you. And faith is the access to Jesus. It's like the person that has someone, a loved one on the ground, and maybe they're convulsing from some type of problem. And so they call 911, and they're on that, that phone. And they're, the sincerity of your 911 phone call doesn't cause 
the problem to get worse or better. In other words, just because you have a great 911 phone call doesn't mean that that person, when the medical team comes, is going to have a better job saving them or not, right? In other words, it's not like it empowers them. It's like, in fact, you could be on the 911 phone call and you could be like, help, and they would still come, right? The power in rescuing that loved one is actually in the ability of the people coming to be able to rescue them. It's not in your phone call. The phone call, the 911 phone call, is just a way to say, I need help. I can't do it, right? And that's the same thing with faith. Faith is us saying to God, I can't do this. I need you. So the truth that Jesus was teaching here was that he is the one who powerfully works. It's, it's Christ's love. It's Christ's power that saves. And faith is the phone call that gives us access to his power and his rescuing ability. And so, so God's power to save is unleashed to those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not faith in your own faith. It's faith in Jesus. And I think it's actually the point that Jesus was making with the mustard seed. It's like, even if you have just small faith, God can do amazing things. So the power to, of God unleashed upon you comes from the fact that he chooses to work in your life and you reach out and trust him. Some also think, this is my number two, but it says number one up here. Some also think that falsely take this promise and teach the kind of name it and claim it. And the idea is that whatever you want, God will do for you, you know, which is ridiculous. Come on, really, right? I mean, if I wanted God to have me be able to fly like a bird, if I just believed it, would that happen? I mean, obviously, no, but some people actually take this idea and they kind of apply it in their life and say, as long as I, you know, ask for something, if, if I really believe it, then God will give it to me. And we kind of talked about this already, but I, I think about it like this. Why is it that God will not just give you whatever you want? What, what was Jesus saying here when he said that you can ask and I will give it if you believe? What was he saying here? Well, he, he's saying that, that Jesus can work within your life and he can do whatever is possible with God. And what's possible with God? Anything within his will and within his character. In other words, God can do anything within his character and within his will. In fact, I think about it like this. If I were to go with my kids to Chi-Chi's afterwards, which is a good place to eat, by the way. And if I were to go to there afterwards, and I would say, hey, you guys can get whatever you want. Okay, what do I mean by that? Like, if you listen to that, and a child listens to that, what's, how are they going to interpret that? Right? And I'm going to say before I kind of give like further, the further illustration is I think that's kind of what you sh- how you should interpret this, like the normal sense of it. If my children said, I want everything on the menu. Yeah, that's outside of my will, actually. I'm saying within the purview of this menu, <laughs> you can get whatever you want. Or let's say one of the children said, oh, okay, I want an octopus, you know, from Australia. No, actually, it's within the, the will and character of this restaurant here, right? You, you get the point. It's like no one thinks that in life. And so when Jesus is saying this, he's saying, listen, anything, I can do anything if you believe within my character, within my will. In fact, uh, John 15, 17, 17, 5, I think, or I'm sorry, 15, 7. I think that's why Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you can ask what you wish and it will be done for you. So the idea is that you, you're understanding and you're seeking the promises of God and you have a close relationship with him. So let's continue on. Genuine faith. Oh, there you go. 
There's my two points. I wonder where those went. They're right up there. Thank you. Genuine faith in Christ approaches him in humility, approaches him in humility. Look down at verse 24. The Bible says, and immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. See, the father did believe, but he was humble and he admitted his frailty and his weakness. He was praying, I do believe in the power you have, Jesus, but I'm weak. And actually, I need help to even believe in your power. James Edwards writes about this father's plea. He says this, true faith is always aware of how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer, not when he amasses sufficient amount of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his own insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. True faith takes no confidence in itself, but looks to the more powerful one. Does that make sense? There's a humility even when you believe in the Lord. I mean, if you, if, if you think that you have great faith and you boast in your great faith, that's no faith right, in the Lord. Like true faith recognizes how feeble and frail you are. I mean, do you ever find yourself crying out to the Lord and just, just Lord, some, I don't really even see clearly right now. Like I'm just clinging to you and your promises. I don't feel right right now, but I trust what your word says. I think that's kind of the idea here. And it's kind of like what you see in the Psalms with David. David's crying out and it's like on one side, he's like, I have no hope, but I hope in you. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I trust in you. You see that? And so there's, that's what the cry this father has here. It's like, I am insufficient, Lord. I need help. I'm believing in you. And third, genuine faith in Christ is generated by the word of God. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked. So there's the words of Jesus. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you. Notice how there's so many references to the words of Jesus here. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. But when Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, he arose and he arose. Notice the mighty work that overpowered evil. What was it? It was the powerful word of Jesus Christ. And faith in Christ is generated by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. So if you're struggling with faith, you're like, I'm one of those people. I'm really struggling with faith. I would recommend that you get your Bible open and you look at the words of Jesus Christ, right? This is where the character and the will of God is, is revealed to you. In other words, this is the menu that Jesus says, ask what you will in my name and I will give it to you. Okay, so go in here and see what he says and make sure your faith is founded upon the powerful words of God. And last of all, genuine faith in Christ seeks grace through prayer. Look at verse 28. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And genuine faith seeks grace through 
prayer. Again, the disciples, it seems they didn't trust the Lord here. They trusted in their own ability. And that was evidence in the fact that they didn't go to the Lord in prayer. They didn't pray to the Lord. And Jesus teaches us here that genuine faith is a praying faith. In fact, if you have genuine faith, listen, if you have genuine faith, you will pray. If you lack genuine faith, that's evidence in the fact that you don't pray. So do you pray? If you have genuine faith, you will pray. And if you lack genuine faith, that's evidence in the fact that you don't pray. And of course, prayer alone does not evidence you have faith, right? People pray all over the world. Like if you're a Muslim, you pray five times a day. So that prayer alone doesn't actually mean you have faith in Jesus Christ, right? Doesn't mean that you're actually redeemed by the Lord. Prayer is not an evidence of itself that you have faith. I mean, in fact, James says this. It says that some people pray to Christ and they pray amiss because they want to consume it upon their own lust and God ignores them. So, so you can pray and you cannot have genuine faith. Listen to this. You can pray and you cannot have genuine faith, faith, but you can't have faith in Christ and not pray. Now I'm confusing you, aren't I? So let me say it instead of two double negatives, say in the positive that if you have genuine faith in Christ, you will pray. You will pray. See, prayer and faith go hand in hand. In fact, if you were to look at the parallel passages for this, this passage right here, you would see that actually Jesus ends those other passages by saying, you guys lack faith. And so lack of faith and lack of prayer go hand in hand. So the question we have to ask ourselves so are we going to the Lord in prayer? So as we close, let me ask a couple questions. Do you, do you have genuine faith in Christ? I mean, when you face a problem this week, or think about last week, when you faced a problem last week, when you faced a sin or some kind of struggle, maybe some type of, evil situation, difficult situation, where did you go? Like if you ignored it, or or if you just said, well, I'm just going to try harder next time, then where did you place your faith? If you say, well, I'm just going to try to make up for it next week, or I'm going to go to church, and that will will help me feel better. Where are you placing your faith? It's not in Christ. If you rush to the relief of, of venting to someone through texting or social media or or calling a friend, or maybe it's some kind of drug or another adrenaline rush, then where are you placing your faith? And, and if you seek those things instead of Christ, maybe that indicates your faith is not truly in the Lord. And so, oh friend, if you're in here without Christ, if, if truly you don't have genuine faith, you're like, yeah, I, don't, I think actually I'm described as a person who lacks faith. Let me invite you today to come to Christ and to trust him. He is the only powerful one. He's the only one powerful enough and good enough and loving enough to forgive and to cleanse you. And I guess I would say to us as a church, brothers and sisters in Christ in here, let's examine our faith. It's always good for us to do that. The Lord's doing that. Examining our faith, the, the faith, the genuineness of our faith. Is your faith genuine? I mean, are you daily looking to Christ in his work? Does your heart cry out in humility, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling. 
I believe, but, but help me. Help me when I'm not believing. Help me to keep believing. Does your faith rest upon the words of God? Are you expressing your faith through prayer? And may God grant us, by his grace, the genuine faith in Christ that, that we need and God desires for us to have. Genuine faith depends on the person and power of Christ. It approaches him in humility and is generated by the word of God. Let's seek God's grace through prayer right now. Would you pray with me? Father, as we approach the throne of grace, we seek you in prayer. I guess I would think that there's probably some people in here who are like this father who's crying out right now and saying, I have not been believing, but I see this and I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. And I ask God, if there's someone in here today that is without you, will they right now in their seat, God, will you penetrate their heart with your spirit and convict them of their need for Christ and may they cry out to you right now. God, for us as brothers and sisters in Christ, we all have things we're working through, sin struggles we have, problems in this world we're we're facing. We're so tempted to run to ourselves and to other sources for what we consider as strength and run away from you. And oh God, forgive us for that. God, we look to you Jesus, you are the one who loves us. You are the one who satisfies. You are the one who is powerful enough to deliver us. I pray for us as a church, may we have genuine faith. Keep us humble before you. Keep us, keep us, uh, drive us to your word. God, may we be expressing our faith through prayer. And we ask by faith that, God, you will continue your work in our hearts in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.